Well, when God's people live like they are lost, part two. Um, The Lord's people, as we talked about last Sunday, uh, were called out, Abraham. They were built up in Egypt. They were brought out by Moses and the work of the Lord. Then, over time, they were then placed in a place. And they were placed in a place for the purpose that in that place, they would be established to be something. And that ultimately was about being established to be a nation of people that are sent out to the world. That's what Exodus was God's intention and God's design for his people uh, back in the day. And by the way, I would also note for his people today. That we would be a called out, built up, brought out, placed, and established to be sent out people. Uh, That's what the Lord is seeking to do. And the book of Judges is telling us the story of God's people in a unique time period. After they've been called out, after they've been built up, after they've been brought out, after they've been placed in. It's this 350-ish year period of time that God is seeking to establish his people. For his people to become established to be able to be what God has uh, designed for them to be. But the problem in the book of Judges during this period of time is... They are not establishing themselves to be what God wants them to be. I would say they're stuck. They're stuck. They are stuck and established. And they are stuck in being established not on what the Lord would want them to be established to be, but they're stuck on being established to be what they want to be. Let me say that again. They are stuck on being established to be what they want to be, not what the Lord wants them to be. And honestly, I think everyone in this room can understand that reality, right? You really can. And rather than pursuing hard after being who the Lord wants them to fully be, I might describe the uh, the nation of Israel at at that time as this. There are two tablespoons, or let me do, I, I'm not a great cook, so two teaspoons of Yahweh and four cups of what I want. It's kind of two teaspoons of Yahweh and four cups of what I want that really makes up the majority of the batter of what's going on with God's people. Well, we're in part two of Jephthah. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. If you're not there or if you're using the Bible in the back of the seat there, I think it's page 211, turn there. Uh, We're working our way through, and we are a kind of church that works our way through texts. And (laughs) sometimes there are texts we come in when we do this where it's just like, I don't really want to go to this text. I just, honestly, I'll just be straight up with you. I would so prefer just to jump over this one because there's some uh, kind of gnarly stuff that goes on here. So uh, let's narrow in kind of our 12 tribes map up on the screen. And uh, so far, here's what we've encountered through the book of Judges. We've encountered nine judges so far. Othniel was the first one, and kind of Othniel was a Captain America, really kind of got things going pretty well on the whole. And then we come to Ehud. Ehud, remember the assassin with Eglon, the king, the big guy, and uh, uh, he takes him out. Then Shamgar, the ox goad warrior, the one verse man, end of chapter three. And then we came to Deborah. Ladies, yeah, uh, yeah. 
Now, and Deborah, what a sweet, amazing, amazing woman she was. And then we came up to Gideon. Gideon's just like all over the place. And then we come upon Abimelech. What a mess. And then Tola. And then next, Jer. And then today, and last Sunday, we're on Jephthah. Jephthah. You can kind of see on the map the regions where most of this is taking place uh, it, during the book of Judges. Round numbers, I think a thing that's important is to understand that round numbers, these nine judges, encompass about a 300-year period of time. Okay, they're not just bam, 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 bam. It's about 300 years of time so far. Think of that. That means the 1900s, the 1800s, the 1700s. That's a long period of time. And this is describing what God's people are looking like since the 1700s to today. And it's a mess. It's just a mess. It's a sad reality with what's going on. But we're with Jephthah. If I were to give Jephthah, kind of name him a superpower that Jephthah thought he had, maybe I'll put it that way, Jephthah had the superpower of words. He had the superpower of words. He used his words. He used language. He used communication skills and thought. He was an incredible negotiator. I mean, Jephthah was born to cut the deal and close the deal. That was Jephthah, and we're going to see that today. However, his superpower also, as we'll see today, becomes his kryptonite. Words kill, at least in Jephthah's situation. They end up killing, and we're in that. Well, the part one of the story, we were in chapter 10. Let me just kind of briefly bring us up to that. If you weren't here, or let me try and bring last Sunday back together here for us. End of chapter 10, uh, scene one. Let's kind of go about it in that way. The Ammonites, they're positioned for war against, uh, against the tribe of Gad, against the tribe of Gilead, the Gileadites. They're there. Cut to scene two. The leaders of Gilead are meeting, and they ask, hey, who's going to be the man that is going to lead us in this victory against uh, this apparent war with the Ammonites? And, and who can we have leader and then be head over us in that? So that, then we are in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Cut to scene three, where it's a flashback, a recount of Jephthah's story. And it's summed up this way. Jephthah was a mighty warrior, verse one tells us. Uh, and also, uh, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. He was the one son of many sons of Gilead, the, the dad. But he was the one son from a prostitute. All the other sons was from Gilead's wife. Awkward. Time passes, uh, just moves right in, and, and all the sons are now grown up. And why is that? Because now the inheritance matters. It just does. The inheritance matters to them of dad. Dad's likely a pretty rich guy. And, and so in this, the inheritance comes into the sons uh, of the wife, uh, into their mind. It's, it's not so much of the story that Jephthah is an embarrassment to the family, although I'm sure that's uh, contained within here. It's the idea that all of a sudden the other brothers grow up and they realize, hey, Jephthah's the, the outcast of the family. And as I said last Sunday, why do we do that? Why do we do that? It wasn't Jephthah's choice. It wasn't Jephthah's decision. And yet, this is the situation, and so his stepbrothers want him out. Why do they want him out? Because he's going to take part of the cut, and he comes from a prostitute, and he doesn't deserve any of that. So sad. 
And so they boot him out and uh, work it so that he leaves. And, and to, to Tob, the city area of Tob, Jephthah goes and he puts his superpower in full work there using words. And really we get the idea from the Hebrew text. I mean, he's getting around with these worthless fellows. It's this idea of uh, Tob is like this mob city and he's gathering together a mob family and he's the mob boss. That's really kind of the idea of what's going on with Jephthah at the time. Cut to scene four. We're back out of the flashback, and we're at the war zone area, and, and the war is about to begin, and the elders of Gilead are desperate for a leader, and they have no one, so Elder Bob, or I don't know, one of them in Gad there, brings up the idea, hey, what about Jephthah? What about Jephthah? Everybody knows the dude is a mob boss. What if we got him here to help lead us in the war with this? And so they do. They go. They meet with Jephthah. The elders meet with him and say, hey, Jephthah, come be our leader that we might fight the Ammonites. And then Jephthah's like, what? Or maybe he has the marshmallow in his cheeks. What? What are you thinking? Are you crazy? Why now? Oh, and then the elders are, well, because you're a mighty warrior, Jephthah. And we need your help. Not only that, uh, we want you to be leader over us. Oh, by the way, did we, in our first conversation, did, did we conveniently forget to say, we don't want you as just leader, we want you as head over all of us. Oh, yeah, now, 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 yeah, we forgot that. Now we want you head. Will that make you leader over us? And Jephthah's like, leader and head? Game on, boys. Game on. And so Jephthah joins the rank, scene 5, we're really at verse 12, chapter 11. Jephthah puts his superpower into gear, and he begins this political dialogue with the king of the Ammonites, sending message. Message number 1 is, what do you have against me that you come to fight against my land? By the way, verse 12 in there, it's so much about first person, that's Jephthah. He talks, and he loves to talk about everything that impacts himself. And then the king is like, well, because way back when Moses brought the people out and they, Joshua, they came up and they took some of our land and they took some of our borders and summing it up, uh, Jephthah's second message back to them is, king, your revisionist history is messed up. Let me straighten you out on that. And he gives them a history lesson and tells them the facts. And, in, and by the way, it includes some sloppy theology in it, and that's Jephthah. And Jephthah's superpower is his words. He's amazing with them. He can work himself out of any hard situation. But it's going to catch up to him. And scene 5 closes, chapter 11, verse 28. And the king of the Ammonites says, nope, not going to work. By the way, look at the very end of, in the middle of verse 28. The king says this. I think the writer is writing this in the kind of way to help us see this. And he says, uh, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah. I'm just telling you, as you read this in the literary movement of the writer, he's keying in on words, 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 negotiation, back and forth, back and forth, playing the game in it all. And Jephthah has used his words to build a mob family. He's used his words to negotiate himself to be tribal prime minister of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's negotiated himself into taking on an enemy king. But his words are going to be his kryptonite. And we pick up here in verse 29. I'm going to read verse 29, then jump two verses to verse 32. Excuse me, verse 32 and 33. <coughs> and, uh, and then we'll come back to those two. I think you'll see why here in just a second. Chapter 11, verse 29. You there? Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. 
talk about that in just a second. And he, Jephthah, passed through Gilead, and Manasseh passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the (laughs) the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Very cool. Verse 33, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karem, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Verse 29, it's interesting. It says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. You know, we often picture that terminology in this day and age, if you will, New Testament side of things. We picture that terminology as kind of like this, God gave Jephthah this spiritual bam, if you will, of approval for him to overtake the recipients. And he did, but we think that he ends like with Moses at the burning bush. And then he comes walking back and he's glowing off of Mount Sinai. That's kind of what we think when we see this terminology in the Old Testament with these, with these folks. But, but don't make that assumption. Don't make the assumption that Jephthah knew. Don't make the assumption that Jephthah felt this. Don't make the assumption that Jephthah exuded the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Why do I say that? Let me read from some commentators here. I think they can say it probably better than I do. First block. Block notes, he says, the spirit of the Lord was upon, that term does not presuppose any particular level of spirituality on the part of the recipient. Okay, let's build on this. Uh, Younger has some words to say. He says, it is easy for Christians who are more familiar with the New Testament concepts of indwelling and filling who are more uh, uh, to read these back into the Old Testament. These do not really equate. To be filled with the Spirit of the New Testament speaks of spirituality. That is, the one who is filled is controlled by the Spirit with the consequent actions being spiritual activities. Ephesians chapter 5, put on the, uh, the armor of God. In the Old Testament, the notion is that of the empowerment for a particular task. Though it is apparent that the recipient might misuse this empowerment. The New Testament equivalent is perhaps closer to the idea of giftedness, where the recipient can use his or her gifts to positive results or misuse or abuse those gifts. Younger goes on and more to say this, it uh, being the, the, the spirit of the Lord was upon, it affirms Yahweh's involvement in empowerment, but does not guarantee the recipient's spirituality. Being empowered does not mean that Yahweh overwhelms Jephthah's personality, forcing him to only perform in a certain way. Jephthah still makes choices. And these choices are, unfortunately, as you will see, because of his own ignorance, not based on God's word. And friends, let me just say, Jephthah is the perfect introduction to Samson we're going to be delving in after next Sunday for four Sundays with the life of Samson. And, and this is so much the case for him here. And it's just under, it's important to understand, the Lord has just been so eerily silent in this time with Jephthah. His name is mentioned, but we really don't see him speaking words. How interesting is that? Jephthah is words, 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 the power of words. And the Lord 
words-wise, is silent. Now, you'll see, I think there's three brief kind of uh, he is sovereign warrior pursuer moments in the whole story of Jephthah. One is chapter 10, verse 16, which I think undergirds the entire time of Jephthah here. And verse 16 in chapter 10, it says, the Lord could bear Israel's suffering no longer. Then we see the Lord again in 1129, what we just read. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, but we just got an expanded understanding of that. In the Old Testament, it's oftentimes an empowerment for a particular task. It's not a New Testament filled with the Spirit of God and growing in that. And then in chapter 1132, we read, where the Lord gave them into his hand. But again, the Lord is not speaking anywhere. And yet Jephthah's mouth is running unstoppable. And it's going to get him in trouble. I want us to pause and kind of consider a few things here. It's striking that, if you will, Jephthah's superpower of many words is met by the non-existent words of the Lord. Is the Lord working? Yes. Is Jephthah the kind of guy that is submitting himself in the kind of way that we would want to see with the Lord, I'm just going to say no. We're not seeing that. And in here, the Lord sees and acts, but there's no words from the Lord. None. And out of this, it kind of screams the whole question, why did the Lord in verse 32 give his stuck and living like their lost people victory? Right? Don't you? Why did the Lord do that? Why was the Lord uh, so good to them by doing and allowing them to win the war when they've done nothing to deserve it? It's true. Why would the Lord do this when they've done nothing to deserve it? It's called grace. And friends, you and I, We really don't get grace. Because in this whole situation, there's just something that stirs within us. That it's like, but they didn't earn this. That's exactly right. Why did the Lord do this? Because of chapter 10, verse 16. The Lord just could no longer bear the suffering of his people. It's not because they are great. It's because he is grace. And he just can't see the pain any longer. In this, just imagine if you're Jephthah or the elders of Gad. And verse 33 happens. You win. And in fact, I love it in verse 33. Subdued before them all the people of Israel, if you will. I would probably be thinking, man, the Lord's got to be pleased with us. The Lord just did a work here. I mean, the Lord conquered himself and showed, and we, we won in all of this. Wrong thinking about God often plays with his works. Wrong thinking about God often plays with, in our heads, his works. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about how we interpret his works and assume what he's doing and saying in his works interpreting. It's kind of like this. Well, God did blank, so he must be doing, must be thinking this. I remember in Hurricane Sandy when that hit. 
and hearing in the media Christian leaders saying, God's bringing judgment on New Orleans. That is the most arrogant, asinine kind of thinking. Like, you know what God is doing with this? Like, 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 you know that's what happened? You know that the mind on the throne was thinking that was the case? Maybe it was. But it was just arrogant to have that seat. Like, we know the details of why the Lord is doing what he's doing. We've just seen some, some murders in Orlando. And the natural question is, why? Why would someone, why would someone do that? But listen, friends. To take the works of the Lord and us be in a seat of interpreting them, watch out. We just need to be in a place where sometimes like, I don't know what God is doing. But we're to be faithful in it and know that he is sovereign in it. Also, we can assume things like God's work means that he's pleased and glorified with us. I'm just going to bring it home. The Lord's blessing on this church in just eight years, that's got to mean that the Lord is pleased with me, pleased with us. Oh, be careful. God's work in my small group, in my children's ministry class, in our high five group this coming, in the coming weeks ahead, in, in my home, at my work, because the Lord's showing up, it means he's pleased with me and I'm glorifying him. Or my kids are following the Lord, that means he's pleased with me, he's pleased with us. Or my kids aren't following the Lord, so that means he must not be pleased. Do you see where this goes? I might just suggest that the Lord does what he does in spite of you and I. And only because of who he is. Why does he do what he does? Sometimes it's just good to answer, I don't know. But I know who he is, and that's enough. Let's be careful we don't get arrogant when the Lord shows his works. Let's go back to verse 30 and 31. Let me actually pick up from verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead. Manasseh uh, uh, passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. Uh, Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Verse 30, and on this passing on, this moving through, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give me the, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. <laughs> Why do this? I actually think this is kind of confirming that Jephthah probably had no idea that the Spirit of the Lord was moving him to do what he was doing. But why did he do this? This is, friends, this is just foolish. This is just messed up words in so many ways here. It shows ignorance of the Lord and who he is, and also I'll even add ignorance of God's word, even back then with the Pentateuch. 
It's stepping into the throne room of the wonder of God. And that's what wrong thinking does. Wrong thinking about God often plays with his wonders. Wrong thinking about God often plays with his wonders. Jephthah thinks he can word bargain with God because God is that kind of God. He thinks he can negotiate with God. After all, he's negotiated with the elders in Gad. He's negotiated with the king. And now he can just negotiate with God, Yahweh. Because, by the way, this is the theology of the day of how everybody worshipped the small G gods of the day. You bargained with the gods. You played deal with, deals with the gods. And Jephthah is bringing Yahweh into the same category of all the other small G gods of the day. And in it here, he's playing with the wonders of who God is. It's like the Lord is the great and mighty Oz who can be negotiated and manipulated. It's like, God, if you will let me win this game, I'll blank for you. If you let me get an A on a test, even though I haven't studied, God, if you let us win the game, if... God, if you let me get the sale, God, if you give me this job, Lord, if I win the lottery, I'll give half to the church. You're welcome to do that. <laughs> Lord, if I lose 15 pounds, Lord, if you resolve this situation, this problem before me, Lord, if you heal me, then... Friends, I just want to tell you, it's kind of like this. When we do that, it's like stepping into the throne room before God and trying to cut a deal. And if you were here when we went through the Revelation series, Revelation chapter 1, that's a wrong view of who the Lord is. And here we find Jephthah wordsmithing his way with the Lord. And know this, redeemed in Christ, you have an advocate at the throne. You do have an advocate at the throne. And scripture tells us that we are to boldly approach the throne and ask, do that. We are to do that, but not in a, if I do, you will do. If you will do, then I will do game. That's built on a works-oriented mindset. That's playing. And generally, we play to what we think is our best self-interest. Instead, we need to approach the throne of Revelation chapter 1 and see the glorified, magnified, risen Jesus Christ and fall face down like John, like we're going to die. And yet in it, The Lord puts his right hand on John. And let's go after it, buddy. Jephthah is not that. Friends, listen. We don't play with the wonders of who the Lord is, but we rest in them. Rest in the wonder of who the Lord is. Face down awing wonder of who the Lord is. Oh, rest there. If you are in Christ, rest there. If you're not in Christ, 
There's no resting there. But if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've been redeemed in Jesus Christ, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Oh, rest in the wonder. Don't play his wonder. And Jephthah is. I'm going to throw the third thing out here, and then we'll see it in the rest of the text. Wrong thinking about God often gets played out with his words. Wrong thinking about his words. And I say that because are there vows made in the Pentateuch? There are. Did Hannah pray, give me a child and I'll dedicate him to the Lord? Yep. Did Gideon ask for a flea sign? Yep. Bad theology commonly comes out of misuse of narrative text of Scripture. Say that again. Bad theology, bad practice, generally comes out of misuse and abuse of narrative text in Scripture. And by the way, 70% of the Bible is narrative. It's the telling of what happened. And bad theology grabs a hold of that, and, and it like, it's, well, the, the Lord, it happened there, so it must happen here. Wait a second. The Lord has already done certain things during the time of the judges, and at other times done them differently. And just because the Lord did it there doesn't mean he's promised to do it here. Narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. Narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. Just because God did it there doesn't mean God does it that way all the time. Principles are drawn, but it's not where you grab your promises. It's like this nowadays. God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. Sorry if I just blew your whole worldview. That is not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. That's so work-oriented. Here's another one. Let go and let God. It's not in the Scriptures. It's not. You can't love others until you love yourself. You know, it comes out of the text where it talks about love your neighbors as yourself. So therefore, you need to learn to love yourself more so you can love other people. That is so convoluted. Scripture tells us the problem is, is that we love ourselves too much. That's the heart of the problem. And Jesus is just using it as like, hey, I know you love yourself like super, super much. If you would just love others like you love yourself then we might be on better track. And we take it and go, you need to love yourself more. No, trust me, you got plenty of that. Okay? We've got plenty of that going on. Or here's another one. Oh, I'm going to blow some people out of their mind in your life verse. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Therefore, I can do anything and everything. That's not what the verse is talking about. Check the context. Check the context. It's not what it's talking about. I call that the pull-up verse in camp. Doug, Philippians 4.13! <laughs> it was on pull-up 8, and Jesus didn't show up. <laughs> Blew my view of God. <laughs> Here's another one. Bible says God loves everyone. True. 
Therefore, all are saved, all will be redeemed. Universalism. Oh, I wish. Oh, I wish. But what I want is not what Scripture is about. It's about what the Lord is, and the Lord says, and who the Lord is. But well, let's move on here. We're going to ramp it. Jephthah thinks he knows what God's word is saying about the Lord, but, but Jephthah is thinking and talking really out of huge arrogance and sloppiness here. And I'll just say it, that's what lost people do. Whether that's just lost in life or lost from Christ. They take God's works, they take God's wonders, and they take God's words and play them. And play them to self-benefit. And that's what's happening here with Jephthah. Let's keep reading here. Okay? So the Spirit of the Lord comes. He goes. He makes this vow. The people are subdued. They win the battle. Really exciting. Okay? That's the idea. Verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home. Woo! Just like Gladiator, trying to. Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold... His daughter comes out. Remember the vow? Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Daddy! And she's dancing and tambourines, and by the way, that's so uh, what was going on with, with the women after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus, and the d- exact same kind of rejoicing terminology, and then the text tells us she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. What, why does that matter? Because Jephthah's lineage Ends with her. Verse 35. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter! You have brought me very low, and you have become the, great, the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take my vow back. By the way, a couple things here. He's half-blaming his daughter. You catch that? Dude, I'm sorry, but you are messed up. He's half blaming his daughter. There's a whole bunch of you's and me's in it. And by the way, the last statement, I cannot take my vow back, is not true. It's not biblical. Why do I say that? It is true. Leviticus 18.20 and Deuteronomy 12.31. One, it tells, those two verses tell us that human sacrifices are detestable to the Lord, that the Lord hates that. The Lord hates that. Numbers 30 verse 2 says you are to keep your vows. But Leviticus 5, 1 through 5, talks about the undoing of a rash vow. And Jephthah had access to all that. And Jephthah made a rash vow. 
which was foolish and unbiblical. And then here in this whole situation, I cannot take my bow. Not true. Verse 36. And she said to him, this daughter is amazing. My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. Uh, I, I and my companions. By the way, she's not talking about just the whole thing of like, oh, I'm, now, I'm going to die because I can't have, I'm going to die and I'm never going to have sex. That's not what's all going on here. This whole concept of virginity is this whole idea of she can't pass on the family lineage anymore. And I'm just going to tell you, we don't get that like they got it back in that day. And with what's going on. Now, I'm also going to say this, did Jephthah really mean that he was going to sacrifice his daughter? And I just decided, I just can't bear it. Uh, there's talk about it. It was in the Middle Ages when all of a sudden men got really smart that we started to say that, you know what, maybe it was just a dedication to the temple, kind of like Samuel. I'm just going to tell you, that makes no sense in the whole flow of the whole text here. And by the way, you need to understand this because part of that conversation comes in because we have to like justify the Lord. Know this, the Lord is not in on any of this. He is not pleased with any of this. Verse 38, so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And At the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughter of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. By the way, that would never happen if they just, if it was, she was sent to the temple as a virgin, a servant at the temple. This doesn't make you sick. I don't want to be self, selfish here, but I've been in this all week. And it's just draining me, my soul. Not just of what a fool he is, but how foolish we can be. Maybe not to this extent. But manipulating and playing the works of the Lord and the wonders of the Lord and the words of the Lord. And things go bad and they go south. And yet, her, I'm just stunned by her. What a woman. And let me just say this she's not complaining now. Do you know what I'm saying? Listen, no question about it. This girl's with the Lord, not because you earned it. But you just see her understanding of who he is. And she's not bothered by this. But it should just grieve us. Because here they just won a war and now we're in this. And it's just all messed up. And that summarizes the book of Judges and God's people. Messed up thinking and actions.
So what happens when God's people live like they are lost? Well, a result is that God's people, one result is God's people can end up going to war with each other. Watch this and let's finish with this. Seven verses here. The men of Ephraim, new story, were finishing out Jephthah's life. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, now you can see on the map we've switched from Amnon, now Gad is now interacting with Ephraim. Let me just tell you, Ephraim was the heart of the 12 tribes, and Ephraim thought they were way too sexy for their shirt. And that's what happens here. Watch this. They won the battle. And then the men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Dude, chill out. Go get a Mountain Dew. Just do do something. Hold on here with this. What's happened? And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. By the way, there's lots of mys in there. Why then have you come up uh, to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. By the way, you are fugitives of Ephraim. I could really say what the word in Hebrew kind of properly translated really means, and it's not really good in English. I'm going to keep moving. You are fugitives. That, 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 uh, I'm not going to say it. In the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh, verse 5, and the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan. In other words, they came across, they captured a fords against Jordan, against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, okay, let me put it this way. They're in war. The brothers are in war against each other. Tribe of Israel is fighting tribe of Israel. God's people aren't supposed to be doing that. What's supposed to be happening is all these tribes are to be establishing themselves to be a sent out priest to the world. And what are they doing? It's gotten so bad, so bad, so bad that it's not about fighting the Ammonites anymore. It's not about fighting the Moabites anymore. It's about fighting and killing themselves now. They're eating each other up, chewing each other up. You stink kind of thing. And it's gotten so bad in this war that they want to be able to separate out who's who. And we're finished with this. They separate out. So when they cross over, the men of Gilead said, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they would say, then say Shibboleth. This is actually hilarious. Say Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth. No, Shibboleth. Okay, Sibboleth. It was an accent thing. It was like asking someone from Kentucky. Okay, I won't go there. (laughs) You know, say creek, crick. No creek, crick. (laughs) That's what's happening. And what happens? That let them know you're an Ephraimite and what would happen. And then they'd seized him and slaughtered him. The fords of the Jordan at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites died. 
Jephthah, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah Gileadite died and was buried in a city in Gilead. Friends, when God's people get to the place to where it's like, no, you have to see my thing. Why didn't you invite me in on that? That's what was happening. No, no, you got to see me. I need to be a part of that victory. No, 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 you got to see my thing. You know where I'm potentially going with this. No, my thing's the thing. And if you don't see my thing, then say shibboleth. (laughs) It's sad. And by the way, and churches do this with other gospel teaching churches. There are churches that are not teaching the gospel, but there are other churches that are teaching the gospel that do things very differently than we do. Whether they have Sunday school classes or whether they have different kind of music or quieter music or whatever it might be. And it's kind of like, they stink. Shame on us. We're supposed to be a light to the world. We are to be known by our love. And yes, there are times that we're to call things out. But in it all, we're also God's people. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you've come to that place, you've received Christ as your Savior, you reign in a different reality. And here God's people are just a mess. And by the way, lastly, a word finishes out the story of Jephthah's life. Jephthah, I'm just convinced of this, has been presented as words, 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 words. And the end of thing that we know about Jephthah is he put into this place, this thing of say a word. And if you can't say it right, you're dead. Words can kill. But more often than that, words twist and manipulate and ploy and play games. And we all know that story. Father, we see a people here who are just, they're a mess. It's just sad. They're manipulating, they're negotiating, living like the rest of the world around them. And they're stuck. The truth is they're stuck in themselves and stuck in self. It's just a bad place to be. And yet, Lord, we go there. We get there. We can get stuck there. And Lord, what we're seeing in the book of Judges is what relationship with you is not to be like. Lord, it didn't have to be this way. Here, this, you are working in the presence of your people here. And yes, I do think Jephthah had a faithfulness to him in fighting this war, but everything else around was just a massive, massive mess. And what sticks out above all other things for me in this text is the fact that during this, as we read this account, we find that you are virtually silent 
You are active and you see, but you are silent. And yet you show your grace even when, quote, God's people are living like this. And it just causes me, and I, God, I would pray for us, it would just cause us all to be thankful that even in the mess, that at times we are in our thinking, in the mess at times that we are in our acting, if we are in Christ, you never forsake us. Never. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your long suffering, unending love and grace. And when we are a mess, you are not thwarted. You are not manipulated. You are not played. You are not scared. You are not lost. You are who you are. And we adore you for it, don't we, church? We adore you for it, Lord. So we say thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you will always be. Thank you, Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.